This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, looking this morning at verses 1 through 5, or at least the first part of verse 5. While you're turning there, I do want to invite you to return to worship with us tonight. We will begin this evening a new series in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews does such a Magnificent uh, job of showing the connections between the Old and the New Testament, uh, and yet doing it in such a way that shows the superiority uh, that we of what we have in Christ in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Uh, so I invite you to come as we study that rich book, begin our study of it this evening, and we'll be on Sunday nights. So uh, please join us in the evening. This morning, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, begin our reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter writes, So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that as we study it now, that we would worship you, that we would bow before your wisdom, your authority. Father, we pray that these words would be instructive to us and, Lord, that we would grow in grace through the preaching, study of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I exhort the elders. Some translations render it, Therefore, I exhort you, therefore. Now, you know, one of the fundamental principles interpreting the scripture is when you find the word therefore, when you find the word so, you have to ask, why is it there? What is it there for? What is it pointing back toward? Because it indicates this is a conclusion or this is a, a, a lesson or an implication drawn out of something that came before. Well, we need look no uh, further than just the verses prior to our text this morning to see what it was that Peter is talking about. Why he suddenly begins talking to elders. Is this just something that popped into his brain that he felt the need to talk about? Well, no, because he's drawing this out of what went before. We look particularly at verse 19 of chapter 4, just prior to this verse. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. For that reason, I exhort the elders among you, he says. 
You see, Peter recognizes that when it comes to suffering for the name of Christ, when it comes to suffering for doing good, it often is the leadership of the church that experiences that suffering first, most frequently and most severely. In any situation where the church is physically and violently persecuted, it is the leaders that they go after. It is the pastor. It is the elders that are the primary targets of persecution. And so the elders jump immediately to Peter's mind that even suffering for Christ's sake, they particularly will need to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Sadly, sometimes the affliction that elders endure comes not from outside the church, but occasionally from within the church because of misunderstanding of their actions or criticism of their actions. But Peter thinks of the elders when he thinks of this. And more broadly, the verses that went earlier, uh, where he talks about it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If God sifts his own people first, chastening them, well, then certainly the elders, the leadership of the church, is accountable there before others. We remember what James says in uh, in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Let those who teach remember that they will incur a stricter judgment. And what James is saying is those who take upon themselves the, the position, the authority in the church of being a teacher are held accountable for what they teach to a higher standard because they would presume to be teachers of the word. I use the word presume advisedly. No one serves as a teacher unless called by God to that, called by the church in some form to that. But the point is that they will be held to a higher standard. So for a couple of reasons, it's natural that Peter's thinking runs toward the elders as those who would be the the most likely to suffer immediately for doing good, suffering for the name of Christ. But also because if judgment begins with the household of God, they are the leadership of the household of God. They are the ones who will be held accountable first. And so, for those reasons, Peter's mind starts to think about the church leadership, the elders of the church. And so we want to look at this passage and see what he has to say. First of all, I want to look at it in terms of who it is who's giving the instructions. Second, we want to look at the instructions he gives. Third, we want to look at the motivation that he gives to elders. And then last, we want to look at what he has to say to those Uh, whom the elders lead, in other words, to the rest of the congregation. So first of all, let's look at who it is who is giving the instructions here. Peter says more about himself in this verse, verse 1, than he does anywhere in the rest of the letter, 1 Peter. He says, so I exhort, the word can mean I encourage, I uh, counsel, I beseech, as it says here, exhort the elders among you. Notice he doesn't say command, I order you, but I encourage you, I exhort you, I challenge you. But then notice why his posture is what it is. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. What is the the foundation Peter stands on here as he speaks to these elders in the church he's writing to? Well, He's already mentioned at the beginning of the letter, as he introduces himself, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, that's all he needs to say. 
And once he is an apostle, he can say to the elders of the church whatever he wants to say. But he doesn't pull rank here. Instead, he places himself on their level as a fellow elder among you, as one of you. And it's true, the apostles were unique, but the apostles were also elders in the church. It's interesting in the, in the council in Acts 15, it says the decision was reached by the apostles and the elders. And not all elders are apostles, but all the apostles could certainly be, con- be considered an elder in the church. Peter puts himself as one of them. He doesn't pull rank. I'm an apostle. You have to listen to me. He says, I encourage you as a fellow elder. When I was uh, on the shepherding committee of Old North Georgia Presbytery, before we divided into three presbyteries, uh, we would often have to visit with churches. Sometimes there might be a difficulty in the church or there might be conflict between the pastor and the ruling elders. And when our committee would be invited to come in and meet with the session of a church, it was extremely helpful to have a committee made up not just of teaching elders, of ministers, but to have some ruling elders on that committee as well. Because if we were going to be meeting with and talking to a church session, ruling elders, it was very helpful that it wasn't a bunch of ministers coming and talking to the ruling elders, but there were some ruling elders on our committee who could talk to these ruling elders as fellow ruling elders. It was extremely helpful uh, for just trust, because the ruling elders knew these other guys were also ruling elders and understood where they were, even in a way that teaching elders did not. Well, Peter would most likely here be a teaching elder, probably addressing what we might call, in some cases, teaching elders or ministers, but also ruling elders, uh, other elders who are responsible for the leadership of the church. But he doesn't pull rank. He says, as a fellow elder, as one of you, I encourage you. So not only a fellow elder, but he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, we can understand that in a couple of ways, actually several ways. First, we think, well, eyewitness. This was someone who actually saw Jesus suffer and entrust himself into the hands of his father while continuing to do good. He was an eyewitness. Another way that we could understand that is Peter himself is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He, he, He bears witness. He bears testimony to what he saw. Peter saw a lot, and whether he was actually there at the crucifixion or not, you recently studied Matthew, uh, so it should be pretty fresh. You know, Peter, Peter denied Jesus. Was Peter there? Did he even from far off see the crucifixion take place? Well, we don't know, but Peter certainly witnessed a lot of the suffering of Jesus, his, his, uh, the scorn he suffered from the Pharisees, rejection. Uh, he was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ, but he also bears witness to them. But another way we might could understand that is that Peter himself witnesses in himself the sufferings of Jesus in being identified with Jesus. But the point is, this is a man who knows what suffering is about. This isn't a man who sits off in a comfortable ivory tower office and instructing others down in the trenches as to what they're to be about. He's a man who's seen suffering and experienced it himself. But notice he also ties that immediately to glory, the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so Peter here, again, as we've seen, 
mentions that pattern of suffering with Christ, yes, but also enjoying the glory of Christ. That if we suffer with Christ, we will share in his glory as well. And so this is the one who is giving the instructions. Not so much Peter the Apostle at this point, but Peter, a fellow elder, Peter who knows what it is to suffer and has seen the sufferings of Christ himself, and someone who is a, a, a sharer with them in the glory, in the inheritance that they are looking forward to. And so Peter basically says, I'm writing to you as, as, as someone who's where you are, as someone who has endured what you endure. And uh, we know that. I mean, think about the experiences of Peter that you read about in the Scriptures, certainly in the Gospels in his early days as a relatively young, well, a a new and then young convert in Christ, being discipled by Jesus himself with his successes, with his failures, his ups and downs. Think about Peter as you see him in the book of Acts, someone who preaches and teaches God's word, someone who... uh, has to deal with some sort of sticky problems in the church. Think Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who, uh, who come and bring money from property they had sold and give it to the church. And Peter says, was this the entire proceeds? And they say, yes, when in fact it was not. They didn't have to bring it all. There was nothing wrong with bringing half of it or a fourth of it, keeping the rest for themselves. They could give whatever they wanted to give. The problem was they lied and said, yes, this was everything we sold it for trying to get standing, trying to get place in the church. So Peter's having to deal with some pretty sticky problems in the church. There were others too. Peter knows what it's like to get rebuked. Remember in, in Galatians where Paul has to challenge Peter because he's beginning to shrink back from Gentile believers because he's feeling some pressure for some reason from Jewish believers. He tends to draw back. Paul has to say, Peter, look, you're being inconsistent. This is wrong. You're you're denying the gospel and its inclusion of Gentiles by your behavior. So, yes, Peter knows what it's like to take a rebuke, to learn from that. Yes, Peter went to General Assembly, Acts chapter 15. There he was. Uh, In fact, he even had to speak at General Assembly. So uh, Peter writes as a fellow elder, as someone who is in the trenches, has been in the trenches, has the battle scars to prove it, and uh, therefore on that position, from that position, addresses his fellow elders in the church. In other words, he's someone you can listen to because he's someone who's been there and learned a few things along the way. Well, what does he have to say? What are the instructions he gives to the elders? Well, there's one overarching instruction And then he fleshes out how that is to be fulfilled. The overarching instruction he gives is in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the prime directive. That's what elders are to be about. They are to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Elders are not a board of directors who meet once a month to make decisions and tell everyone else in the church how it's going to go. Now, yes, they may have to function in terms of making decisions for the church as a whole, but and some sessions seem to function as a board of directors, but that's not what the session is. That's not what the group of elders is that leads the church. 
nor are they program coordinators. It's not their job to try to come up with activities and programs uh, to, to fill up the calendar of the church. Although, yes, sometimes they do oversee or begin or watch over or shepherd programs, ministries of different sorts in the church. But their primary function is a very personal function, and it is to be shepherds to the church. Now, that's an old image, right? It goes way back into the Old Testament, the image of the people of God as the flock of God and those who care for them as shepherds. We think probably most immediately of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, which means that I am one of his sheep, right, by implication. Uh, but this whole concept of, of the people of God being the flock, uh, just after the passage in Ezekiel, the Lord upbraids the, the leadership, the shepherds of his people, because they were not watching over the flock, uh, taking advantage of them, abusing the sheep, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that's an Old Testament image, a very familiar one. But elders are to be shepherds, which means they are to carry out the duties of a shepherd. They are to protect, they are to feed They are to guard, they are to defend, they are to guide, to lead. All of these functions that a shepherd would carry out for his flock of sheep are the responsibilities that the elders have toward the church. And that primarily takes place through the teaching of the word, whether that's positive instruction to the people of God, uh, whether that's using the word to correct error, that is either in the world around us or is creeping into the church, uh, if necessary, to bring about discipline against sin in people in the church. But even that, of course, is based on the teaching of Scripture. It's a way of calling one to repentance for sin and obedience to God's word. Shepherd the flock that is among you exercising oversight. Oversight is kind of an interesting word. It's an it, it's a, it auto-antonym. In other words, it is a word that is its own opposite. There are other words like that. Cleave. To cleave means to cut apart, right? Yet the old translation of Genesis 2, a husband shall cleave to, be joined to, hold to his wife. Well, oversight means to watch over. But you can also say, oh, it was an oversight. I missed it entirely. So it can mean one thing good, and it can mean its opposite. It means to look at, to watch over, it can mean to miss entirely. Peter says exercising oversight, he means to pay attention to, not to be oblivious to, right? The, the, the elders of the church are to exercise oversight, to watch over the flock that is entrusted to their care. Now that's the prime directive. But the question he answers now is, how? How do they do that? What does that to look like? Well, there's a lot that he could say here, and certainly a lot the scriptures tell us in other places. But uh, Peter is, is really more concerned about their heart than the technicalities of what they do. And he illustrates this by means of three contrasts. Let's look at them. Exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, literally, according to God, uh, not under compulsion. That's kind of strange. What would, com- what would be some compulsion that Peter would have in mind here? Uh, well, it could be, as some translations render it, not, not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, 
there are different reasons someone might be compelled to become an elder in the church. It might be that they have some strange desire for what they see as control or power. So they're sort of compelled to be elders because, you know, why, why be in the congregation when you can be an elder? Uh, it probably would not take them long to be in the office to be disabused of any such notions. But nevertheless, that's something that might compel someone. Another might be some strange sense that, well, you know, being a Christian, being a member of a church is good. But, you know, if I'm an elder, God really would have to be pleased with me. He must really accept me then because I'm an elder. That would be under compulsion because of God. Under compulsion, maybe because of family. Well, you know, your grandfather was an elder, your father was an elder, and you should be an elder too. Family constraints. You know, all of these things could come into what Peter is talking about here. And yet they find themselves, if it's done right, in a job that's not easy. That's not always enjoyable. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a very hard and very uh, gut-wrenching and agonizing job. And so it's not much fun when they're in it for those other reasons. Peter contrasts that. He says, but willingly, as God would have you. This is something that you should be doing because you want to. Because God has called you to it. He wants you to do it. He's placed you in this position by not only the internal call of the Spirit, but the external call of the church. And this is a way to serve the Lord. It is a way to serve his church. He has given you gifts. He's given you the opportunity. And so you do this willingly, gladly, happily, not under the strain, some compulsion from one quarter or another. That's one contrast. Another contrast is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. It's just one word as Peter writes it. It basically has the idea of, of being greedy in a way that leads you to look for dishonest gain. Now, trying to think through how that would work, uh, certainly in the case of an elder who is paid to be able to be a full-time elder, as I am, I suppose there would be some who are more interested in the paycheck than they are the service to the church. Um, or, you know, we're familiar with uh, strange cases, perhaps on television, where a ministry that may have been at one time about the ministry now has become about raising the money to keep the ministry going and become more about the money. Or you think on a little lower scale of uh, someone who sees being an elder as a way maybe to get their hands on church finances, church funds. Their patron saint is, of course, Judas Iscariot, uh, whom we learn in the Gospels used to filch from the money bag of the collective funds of the disciples. He would steal from it. John tells us, uh, we detect some bitterness in, in those words that he used to steal. And he begrudged you know, money going out. He begrudged this uh, oil being poured on Jesus as a waste. Well, the money could have been, you know, that could have been sold. The ointment sold, the money given to the poor after it was in the money bag briefly where I could have helped myself to some of it. So maybe that's the kind of thing that Peter, uh, who also would have felt the sting of that a little bit, uh, had in mind. And then, but, but in contrast to that, eagerly, again, there, there's a joyful desire to the work that's totally apart from money involved. Whether you are a paid teaching elder uh, or a ruling elder, the, the point is the work itself, not any kind of compensation or any kind of, of uh, payment for that work. And that's true whether you're a ruling elder. It's especially true for uh, a minister, a teaching elder. 
Uh, and I maintain that your payment to me is support to me to enable me to do what I do full time, not paying me to do what I do, but paying me so that I am set free from other worldly employment, other employment outside the church to do what I do full time. I think there's an important distinction there. But then the third contrast he mentions is not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Unfortunately, some people get in a position of some authority or influence, and it seems to go to their head. They become tyrants. I've known men who were like that when they became married. And I've known elders or deacons who were like that when they became an officer. I remember one particular case mentioning the uh, shepherding committee of not an elder, but a deacon who was essentially trying to run the church. Uh, not domineering. Remember, Jesus told his disciples when they were jockeying for position, who is the greatest? Who's going to be first? He, he calls them together and he says, you know, this is how the Gentiles operate. They, they lord it over one another, but it's not to be that way in my kingdom. You know, the greatest among you shall be the least. Greatest among you should be slave of all. Not not power hungry, not not seeking control, but serving. Serving one another. And that's what Peter is getting at here. Not domineering over those in your charge, as if somehow, now that you've become an elder, they're here to serve you. But he says, by contrast, being examples to the flock. We read earlier, Acts chapter 20. Listen to how Paul speaks when he speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus. This is, um, this is verse uh, 18. Chapter 20, verse 18. When they came to him, he said to them, listen, this is the Apostle Paul. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What did they see in the example of Paul? They saw humility and they saw tears and they saw suffering on behalf of the church. Notice another thing they saw in Paul, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house, house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What they also saw in him was a faithful teaching ministry, not just on the public stage, but personally and privately in personal interaction, as well as in a public setting. So they saw humility. They saw a willingness to suffer on behalf of the church. They saw someone who was faithfully teaching the people the word of God publicly, privately. What they didn't see was someone who was domineering, someone whose power had gone to his head, someone who was always having to pull rank, anything but that, far from that. And in fact, Paul can say in verse 26, remember what, what we read in Ezekiel, Paul can say about the watchman, that if he sounds the alarm and the people don't respond, they may die for their sins, but the watchman is freed of any responsibility. He did what he was supposed to do. Paul says, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. They saw someone who was faithful. 
They see humility. They see suffering. They see a dedicated and diligent teacher. They see someone who fulfilled the requirements of his office. And then he turns around and says to these elders, now you do the same thing, in essence, that you saw in me. Pay careful attention to yourselves, first yourselves, and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the value, elders, of the people over whom God has put you. They have been bought with the blood of Christ. Don't ever forget that. So, who it is is Peter, how to do it, these three contrasts he mentions to shepherd the flock, the reward that he puts before them, the motivation, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, a lot of things in that verse. Chief shepherd, these elders are but under shepherds. They're not carrying out their own program. They serve under and are extension of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd of his church. When he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The word unfading, interesting adjective, refers to the amaranth, a flower that, uh, at least in legend, never lost its color. It never faded, the amaranth. Uh, he said that he uses that adjective to describe that wreath, that crown that will be given to those who have served faithfully. And that's what we serve for. That's what we look forward to. We recognize that we'll have to answer to Christ. How, did you love the flock? Did you care for the flock? Were you an example to the flock? Did you teach the flock? Did you give yourself even to suffering on behalf of the flock, or at least inconvenience? To those who do, they will receive a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, a word to those who are led by the elders. Likewise, verse 5, you who are younger. The word does refer to being new or young, but the sense in which Peter uses it here, obviously, is just to contrast those who are not elders, those who are in the congregation who are led by these elders who may be chronologically younger, maybe younger just in the faith, be subject to the elders. Submit yourself to the elders. Now, again, that comes in a, in a, in a, in a, in a context, uh, as some of which we'll look at next week when he talks about this mutual humbling ourselves before one another. Um, he's already told servants to be subject to their masters. He's already told wives to be subject to their husbands. Now he tells the congregation to be subject to its elders. Hebrews speaks to that. Paul speaks to that in other places. Um, the, the, the congregation is to recognize the God-given authority, God-given office of the elders of the church. Certainly they are to carry out their office well. Peter spends most of his time talking to elders. But the congregation should also recognize that those elders are there by the call of Christ and by the appointment of the church. And there is an authority there that needs to be recognized and submitted to. But as in all submission, it's a two-way street. Whether we're talking husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whether we're talking about the church, uh, where the session should be such that the congregation would, would want to submit to them, would see their wisdom, would see their sacrifice, would see their devotion and love to the church. But sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's hard. And Peter admonishes the congregation to be subject to the elders. One last thing, are elders responsible to shepherd every Christian? No. 
Notice what Peter says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not domineering over those in your charge. You see, this is where church membership becomes important. Our elders are not responsible to shepherd every Christian out there in Gwinnett County or greater Atlanta or the world. They're not even accountable, really, formally, to shepherd every Christian who happens to pass through this congregation just by way of visiting one time, twice, maybe regularly for a little while. They are accountable to those of you who have taken membership vows in this congregation, placing yourself under the shepherding care of the elders of this church. Now, while Peter doesn't mention it specifically, I think this passage does very much speak to the place and importance, the priority of church membership, of a formally recognized relationship between a member of the congregation and the session of the church. Now, if someone's visiting regularly, obviously we'll take an interest in them, certainly try to care for them as best we can, but we have no formal jurisdiction over them. But when when you take the membership vows, when you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, then the elders know this is one of God's flock for whom we are accountable and one to whom we owe shepherding care and oversight in a very specific and formally designated way. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Comes from a man who was there. Comes from a man who has spent his life doing that, who has done it well, who's failed at times, and a man who has a great deal to say. And I do want to give thanks to the Lord for the ruling elders of this church, both to God for his raising them up, to you as a congregation for your discernment and wisdom in electing the men that you have elected. I've been in churches and certainly interacted with many churches uh, through Presbytery and other connections, and I want to commend your session to you for their diligence, for their wisdom, uh, for their love for this flock. And I simply commend them to you as men certainly worthy of your submission and following their leadership. God has greatly blessed this congregation with elders, I think, who do fulfill Uh, what Peter is talking about here. And so I would join you in giving thanks to God for that. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do want to thank you for your church. Thank you for the men you've raised up to lead this church as elders of this church. But Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up godly leaders, give grace to those who currently serve. And Father, we pray this would all be to the glory of Christ and to the good of your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.